Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Janieri and this is Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, we continue our History 102 and we do the New World. Exploration, conquest, gold, sugar, genocide, and God, religion. So, when we left off, we talked about the destruction of the Silk Road, the New Kingdom's the Ming and then the Qing dynasty in China, the destruction and then resurrection and then new destruction and then the reunification of India, the rise of the Turks. And it left us with a question that we know happens. Why do the Europeans take to the oceans? Why? Why don't other people do that? Why do suddenly the Europeans get on boats and go to other places? Because it is, if you want to know why the Europeans, why white people controlled the world, it is because they got on boats, ran into America, and then exploited the poop out of it. That's why. They were able to take wealth that Europe didn't have and then compound that wealth year after year after year and turn that wealth into military power. But what starts that? Well, if you're watching the video, we have uh, two maps. One map is the global Silk Road Essentially, the global overland routes from Eastern Asia to the Middle East. The main one goes through um, the northern part of China to Bukhara, to Merv, to Regar, to Katisafan, the Greek city that will be replaced by Baghdad, and then to Constantinople, which is Byzantium or Antioch, or Tyr, Tripoli, the cities of Lebanon, the ports of Lebanon. Then on the right, we have the European trade routes. They come out of the Middle East from Constantinople, from uh, Antioch, from Tripoli, from Gaza, mostly into Italy. Venice, Genoa, Pisa. They come into Italy, and then from Italy, these goods are disseminated throughout the European world. Well, that system, which had been going on from 300, well, a little after 300, well, wait, the, the Han are in the 200s. So around 200 B.C., a hundred, certainly by around 100 AD, so about 1,500 years, let's call it just 1,500 years, this trade network, which has been lasting for 1,500 years, was breaking down. The Ming were going into isolation. Tamerlane was destroying those cities of the Silk Road and northern India. The Turks were conquering southeastern Europe and the Arabic capitals of Baghdad and Cairo. 
East and West Africa were becoming disconnected from the European trade routes because they were tied to the uh, Arabian trade routes that were dying. So if Europeans want Asian luxury items, the porcelain, the spices from Indonesia, the tea, the opium, they had to go direct. No longer was the trickle coming in. And so whoever gets there first will make the money. The Italians are on the outside of this because they're stuck in the middle of the Mediterranean. Blessed by geography to get to the Middle East by sea, they are hindered to go into the Atlantic by sea. They've got southern France, they've got what will be, and Iberia, the Iberian Peninsula, in their way, and North Africa. But whoever gets to Asia first, especially China, where the manufactured goods are, where the real luxury items are, will make the money. And so, in some ways, it's a huge surprise. In some ways, it shouldn't be a surprise that Portugal, the farthest Western country in Europe, starts, goes first. They're the farthest from the medieval Middle Eastern trade routes. They are the furthest into the Atlantic. They have an ocean-going fishing history and a bit of an exploration history. But they are also, in around 1450, the only nation in with Atlantic access and peace at the same time. Having defeated the Iberian uh, Islamic kingdoms that Spain was still fighting, we have peace in Portugal. So where do you put your money? And the money from Henry the Navigator went into shipping. And in the 1450s, they start to head south around Africa. And what they create are rest stops along the way. What, what is boldly called factory towns, but they're not really. They're rest stops. Because it's a long way around Africa. No one knows how long. They know Africa is big. Because the ancients told, the ancients knew Africa was big. And there's some old stories like the Persians went around Africa, sailed around Africa. But no, there's no real records of how big it is. They just know it is big. So what you do is you create rest stops. So you go down a little bit. You learn the, tr you learn the tides. You learn the winds. You learn the currents. And you stop. And you make a trade deal with the people at that area, somewhere safe to stop. And that starts African trade. And so you're learning to sail on the oceans. Oceanic sailing is hard. Especially without an engine, when, you, when you're completely relying on the wind. And so you have to learn how all of the components work. Because you need to bring enough food, you need to bring enough water. You need to know what the climates are, you need to know where the storms are. Because one storm, you know, one day everything's fine, and the next day you're seeing storm clouds on the horizon. And you're like, oh, that doesn't look too bad. And then boom, it's a Category 5 cyclone. And you're done. You're dead. You get hit by 100, you know, 40-foot waves, and pfft, it's all over. But that allows for African trade to resume on, in West Africa, and then 
as the Portuguese get further along in East Africa. Remember, coastal West and later East Africans have trade networks. That trade network went through the Arabs partly to Europe, but mostly into the Middle East. So they are totally fine with turning their trade networks around. Oh, you want our goods? No problem. And the Africans have plenty. They have raw materials, which is the part they're famous for, we talked about in uh, our History 101 classes. Gold is the most important, but other mineral wealth. Africa is still awash and rich in mineral wealth. But also leather from the cattle and lots of other goods. So the Africans are totally willing, the coastal Africans are willing to turn around and use their trade networks and just sell to the Europeans rather than to the Arabs who have been declining. Vasco da Gama in 1497 gets to India, goes around the tip of Africa, goes up the East Coast, is helped by a very well-established African oceanic trade network. See, Western Africa didn't have that oceanic trade network. East Africa did, tied to the Middle East and to India. So he can find people who are like, oh, India, I know where India is. That's not a problem. Why? We could go. No problem. And he gets to India. And then using that same Indian Ocean trade network that has been going on for roughly a thousand years, he's able to get back. And this is the big part. This is the part that matters. He made 3,000% profits. 3,000%. Now, why does that matter? Because the stock market in a good year goes up 7%. Bernie Madoff stole billions of dollars from people by promising 15 to 20%. Right? People are willing to murder each other, to destroy the housing market, to fleece and steal and do all kinds of weird, uh, both lobbying, legal lobbying stuff and illegal tax avoidance for 7%. Vasco da Gama made 3,000%. What do you think happens for 3,000%? And the answer is, kings look at that money and say, holy shit, I can make money on this. And so kings, who are the only people with liquid capital around, start investing to make money. Why? Because it will give them independence from their parliaments, from their lords. Because every king is limited. There are no absolute monarchs yet. But there will be. And this is where they'll get their money from. See, with the money, you can make an army. With the money, you can endow stuff. With the money, you can buy bishoprics. With the money, you can make all the other kings jealous. And 3,000% profits? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you invest? It's so much money that ships that sink along the way, that sailors who die along the way, are nothing compared to the profits you'll make if a ship gets back. Now, the kings start with the investments and corporations start forming. And the idea of this is to diversify risk, but share the profits. Nobody, no single person, even the king, isn't really rich enough 
to go to do this at scale. And Vasco da Gama had a few ships. He did not have he did not have the Ming fleet. He does not have Zheng He's fleet. He had a small group of boats that got there and got back. So if you want to make real money, you need a fleet. You need a lot of boats. You need it to be constantly going. Nobody has that kind of liquid capital. All the money is in land. All the money is being is in the land and the peasants who have to work it. It's in the taxation. This is very true, especially say in France. The taxation, the king is living on the taxation of the peasantry living on land owned by the king and the nobility. So how do you now build a fleet? Well, I've got a thousand bucks. My friend has a thousand bucks. My other friend has a thousand bucks. So what do we do? We put it together and now we each er, we each own a third of 3,000 bucks. We now, we can put more money together when we work together, right? And that means whatever profits we make, we each get a third. So we diversify the risks. If I went in for 3,000, I don't know if I could go in for 3,000. Maybe I've got it, but it'd be a lot. You know, if you don't like the 1,000, make it 10,000. Make it 100,000, Right? But the idea is that you diversify risk. Oh, okay, I'm only in for a third. But it also means I get a third of the profits. So you diversify the risk. So if it goes bad, I'm not wiped out. But if we win, I get a, I get a chunk of that. Good for me. What about Spain? Who's going to be more famous in this, in this course? Well... Their most famous year, I know you know it well, is 1492. Columbus sails the ocean blue. But why? Why does Columbus sail the ocean blue? Because the Rey Conquista ends. The 500-year uh, crusade to re for Catholic Spain to con- reconquer Spain back from the Muslims. The Rey Conquista. So you think of Spain as a European Christian country. But for 700 years, it wasn't. It was a Muslim country tied to the Middle East. It was an Arab country. And so we have the Catholic reconquest of Spain. Also in 1492, to make it super Catholic, Isabella and Ferdinand kick out the Jews and the Muslims. There's a quote, you can convert quote, but they didn't really believe it. They figured you're only you're only converting to stay in the country. So even the people who convert don't really get a lot of benefit of the doubt. Especially once the Inquisition starts, they become like, oh, you're hidden terrorists. It's kind of how after 2001, after the World Trade attacks, um, every mosque suddenly became investigated by the FBI and the CIA. It's like, well, they're Muslims. Well, they're citizens. Well, yeah, but they're Muslims, so maybe something's going on. Maybe they're not really American, right? So that's the way Jews and Muslims are going to be treated. So they got kicked out. But for the first time, Spanish kings and queens, because Isabella is actually the more important of the two. She's the queen of Castile. She, like, Ferdinand got lucky marrying her. Of the two, it's Isabel who matters. That's why, that's why we know Isabel. That's why we know Isabella. Because she was, she it actually should be 
Queen Isabella and, you know, that dude for, you know, Frank Ferdinand. You know, he's king of Aragon. Yeah. Who cares? In 1492, she's the money. She's the army. And now she has money from the plunder of Granada. She also has money being freed up because she doesn't have to support her armies. And so Columbus comes right away. He's like, hey, I uh, heard you won. Um, can I have a couple of your extra ships now? And Isabel's like, yeah, all right, all right. I, gave, I promised you in 1488 that when we finally win, I didn't think you'd come already. It's like, yeah, oh, oh, I heard you won. You know, congratulations. Woo. Go spend. Can I have money now? And so Isabel gives the money. You know, only a couple boats, a crew, a cheap crew, you know, nothing that's going to be missed. But that's the idea, is Portugal will reach India first, but China is the real prize. And so you need a shortcut. Now, you may go, well, they reached India in 1497. Why don't they start going around Africa and just get to India first? And in 1492, and the answer is because nobody knows any of the math. They don't. No one in Spain knows the climate, knows the winds, knows the currents, knows the people that you'd have to like be friendly with along the coast. Like Portugal has a fifty-year head start. You're not catching up. Portugal is clearly going to get to India first. So. The idea is don't even bother racing to India. They got a 50-year head start. Don't even bother. Go for China. And so they need a shortcut. And what is that shortcut going to be? You hire Italians, you head west. The earth is round. The figuring was that it was about 3,000 miles smaller by diameter than it is. Now, that is a misinterpretation of data and all kinds of other stuff as far as I understand it because the ancients knew the size of the earth pretty well and no. Nobody of any education thought the world was flat. Thank you very much. They just, you, you know this if you're a sailor. Why? Because when you look at a ship on the horizon, the ship disappears, but the sail, the mast, stays above the horizon. Obviously, the world is curved. I mean, this is not hard. So, but the Italians were good at, the, the Spanish were fighting a land war. They don't have any sailors. I mean, they do, but not of not that are going to suddenly cross an ocean to China. I mean, that's crazy. But the Italians, on the other hand, were out of jobs because the Middle East trade was was drying up. So you have all these Italian sailors who know how to sail at least on the Mediterranean. So they go, hey, hire us. And so that's why so many of the early explorers are Italian. Whether it's Christopher Columbus or Vasco da Gama. Not Vasco da Gama. No, Vasco da Gama. Isn't he Italian? But even John Cabot is Italian. Henry Hudson. Magellan. Like, all these guys are Italian. And this is why. But instead of reaching China, they run into the American civilizations. So remember when I said that's 3,000 miles? They thought the world was 3,000 miles in diameter smaller? Well, that 3,000 miles is the Americas. 
They didn't anticipate the Americans being there, and they are. And they don't find the spices that they're looking for. They don't find the stuff that they that Columbus went wanted to go to China for. But they found a lot of gold. A lot of gold. About 180 tons of gold are going to be taken out of the Americas. In the 1520s, in the early 1520s, there's the conquest of the Aztecs and the Mexicana. That's civilization. Remember when we started our tour and we talked about there was a major civilization in Mexico? The Spanish will conquer it. With a combination of allies, local allies who hated the Aztecs, but also disease that is going to devastate the people of Mexico, that we'll talk about in a little bit, and also superior technology, but not numbers. It's one of those famous things. Oh, 500 Spaniards conquered an empire of 20 million. Well, yeah, but they also had a plague on their side. And 100,000 Toltecs on their side, too, who didn't like the Aztecs. That part is always forgotten. Cortez loses several battles. There's the famous Trista Noche, the, the sad night where most of the Spanish are not only captured in battle, they're then sacrificed and their hearts ripped out of their chest. Like every time Cortez loses, he ends up back with a group of anti-Aztec natives who are like, you get back on that weird horse thing and you lead. We need to defeat these guys. In 1532, Pizarro um, uses a Peruvian civil war to take over the Incan and Peruvian states. Again, disease is flooding through, coming through before the Spanish even get there. Then there's the discovery of Potosi, which is a literal mountain of silver. It's a mountain of literal silver. And some 16,000 tons. 16,000 tons. Remember, a ton is what? 2,000 pounds? 16,000 tons of silver is going to be looted out of the New World. Warrior soldiers like Pizarro and Cortez, these were not guys being paid by the king. They were on their own. They were mercenaries. They were crusading adventurers. They get rich. The king of Spain gets rich. Why? Because he gets 20% off the top. And here's the thing. Everybody made sure he got it. His 15 to 20%. The king always gets his percent. Why? Because they don't want the king messing with what they're doing in the new world. The king can send an army. The king can make laws. The king can F up your good time, your freedom. So, you so just like in the mafia... You pay your 15%. If you ever watch Goodfellas, you make sure Paulie gets his money. That's the major problem that uh, our main character has is that he's he's got a drug business on the side. He's not he's not telling the big guy, and he's not paying the 15%. So he expects that one day he's just gonna be shot in the back of the head. Because he deserves it. He knows he deserves it. And these warrior crusader, the conquistadors, who are warrior soldier crusaders, are getting rich, but they make sure this king gets his money. Well, the king of Spain 
which went from not that important. The Queen of Spain is more important in Castile, but Spain is a mess. Spain's a war-torn country. It's not France. It's certainly not Germany. But suddenly the king of Spain is the, is, is the richest king in Europe. Well, the other kings are jealous. And so they will authorize pirates and warriors and soldiers and explorers. And what you get is a wholesale plunder of the new world. This is what we call the explorers, but the explorers are looking for money. They're not really exploring. They're plundering. I know it's a heroic. Hey, putting a lot of stuff on your backpack and then walking off into a desert is kind of crazy and admirable. But they didn't do it for nothing. They were doing it to find a shit ton of money and make everybody else rich. And so we get the wholesale plunder of the New World beginning. And, new, and the plunder of New World people. But then, so, at, so that's where we're starting. We're starting with violence and conquest. But nobody wants to stay in the New World. It's hot. They don't really like it all that much. They're, like Cortez goes back to Spain, if I'm not mistaken. Like, they want to go back to Spain. They want to go back to Europe. They don't want to stay in the New World. But then, the real money is found. And that's sugar. Like, yes, they made 180 tons of gold. And yes, they looted 16,000 tons. They will loot and mine 16,000 tons of silver. This will fuel the next 300 years of warfare, roughly. I mean, it takes, it takes a while for Spain to run out of this money. But the real money, the real reason to stay, the money that is going to fuel the rise of Europe, the conquest of the world, and just the wholesale murder of a whole lot of people, Europeans included, white people murdering white people, but also people of color is sugar. Now, sugar came from tropical India and Papua New Guinea. It is a rare Silk Road commodity, and the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans considered it a medicine. Hey, it made you feel more vigorous. Ooh. So it was definitely used as a, as a sexual thing for, you know, hey, here you go, get you excited, right? But it was used mostly as a medicine. That's how rare it was. You wouldn't put it on your food. That's crazy. That's how rare and expensive sugar is. The Portuguese tried growing it in the Azores using African slave labor that they bought from the, the Arabs, that they used from the Arabs. Um, this is worth noting that Portugal and Spain inherited Islam slavery. That as Portugal and Spain reconquered the Iberian Peninsula, they inherited Islam slavery and economics. But the way the slavery worked was you were a war slave and then you became either... You became free or the next generation became free as they were indoctrinated into the culture, i.e. became Christian or became Muslim. This is, this is Roman manumission. So we have slavery. We have slavery in the Azores, trying to work on plantations, trying to make this work, but it's not very successful. But sugar, which Columbus brought with him, 
flourished in the tropical climate of the New World. In the Caribbean and in northern Brazil, it explodes. Well, it's an invasive species. It's in a new ecosystem. It doesn't have any plant predators. It doesn't have any animals that eat it. And it just explodes. Without competition, this new invasive species just erupts in the tropical climate of the New World. And suddenly you have massive success. By 1750, it is the most valuable good sold in the world. Consumption in Europe increased 50 times in 200 years. Can you imagine if you invested in sugar? In 1550, you would have increased your wealth, your investment, 50 times. Now, consumption to investment is not a one-to-one thing, and we could all get complicated, but that doesn't happen. It's still through chocolate, through sugar, through Starbucks, one of the most valuable, even though it's cheap, you consume pounds of it per year. Dentists make a shit ton of money because of our sugar consumption. Everything has sugar. My cereal has sugar. My chicken has sugar. Your fast food has sugar in it. Everything has sugar in it. Sugar and salt. Two rare commodities in the world are now... Have you ever done baking? Have you ever watched a baking show? How much sugar? They're like, well, we start with four bags of sugar to make a cupcake. French cooking is all about sugar. It is an addiction. Um, A can of Coke has nine tablespoons. We're going to talk about this. I think it's nine tablespoons. Massive amounts of sugar. So it is the most valuable gold good sold in the world. Problem. What is the problem with sugar? It's going to make a ton of money. What's the problem? It needs a massive amount of land for sugar to become profitable. You need plantations. You cannot do it on a, on a family farm. The typical person in 1500 might work 20 to 30 acres. Maybe it's up to 50 acres with animals. And that was enough to feed your family and have a little something left over to sell. For sugar to be profitable, it needs a plantation. It needs a massive amount of land. So you need an industrialization of sugar almost from the beginning. Two, you need a massive amount of workers to work that land. The bigger the farm, the bigger the plantation, the more workers you need. But they need the plant. They need the harvest. They need the cut. They need the grind. They need the store. They need to ship the sugar. No farmer can do it alone. It's too hard. So you need workers who can't leave. And that is peasants, serfs, or slaves. You need workers who you can combine into a large mass to do all of these different works, all of these different jobs. No one person can do it alone. Third, sugar is a bulk good. It's heavy. This is why it was rare on the Silk Road. It's too heavy. It comes out of a cane. There's only so many. That's too big. 
So you have to grind. It's too big to carry up more than one. You know, they're tall. They're as tall as a man or longer. And so you have to cut. You have to grind them down. But there's a lot of air. You you've ever looked at sugar crystals? Like Starbucks has still. They had the brown sugar crystals. Like the, the, there's a lot of air. They take up a lot of space. And so it's heavy. So it's, it's hard to ship. So you have to grind it down to turn it into a powder. That requires mills and gears and bearings and steel and engineering. So it means you need a lot of money to make the mill to grind the sugar down into a good that can be shipped. And the problem is that's terrible. The powder is terrible for a ship at sea. Because one what happens to sugar when water hits it? It disappears. It dissolves. The second is, it's a bulk good. It takes up a lot of space. And so, the grinding is better for shipping than the cane, but it's still a heavy bulk. So a solution to really do make money with sugar, you have to now solve the problem of shipping it. And that will be liquefaction. To turn it into a liquid. Sugar dissolves. Liquids can hold. This is physics. And a bit of chemistry. But liquids can hold massive amounts of dissolved solids into it. So you, so you have a massive increase in sugar to weight. By turning it into a liquid. A can of Coke has nine teaspoons of sugar. Monster Energy Drink has 14 teaspoons of sugar in it. And so what the Europeans create is rum and molasses. Barrels of pure liquefied sugar. And now it becomes easy. Because you you, barrels can be shipped side to side and one on top of the other. Matt, or you could build holders if you've ever been to a winery, for example, or or a um, whiskey uh, distillery. You may not want to stack them one after another; it's too much weight. So, but you can build racks that you roll them onto, and now you could ship massive quantities of sugar. But you need furnaces and barrels, and you need the wood, and you need the iron to, to bind it all together. You need the roads, you need the ports, you need the stevedores to load it and unload it. You need records of all of this stuff. So you need writing, and you need education, and you need paper and pen and ink to write this stuff down on so that you know how much you're shipping, how much it's worth. You need insurance in case the ship gets hit by a storm and goes down because you can't be out all of that money. So an insurance company comes along and says, all right, pay us up front, and if something bad happens to that ship, we'll reimburse you that money. But if nothing happens, we keep your money. So in a way, it's a form of gambling, but it's a form of gambling to offset risk rather than to make bigger profit. So, But you need all of this stuff. All of this stuff, look at all the stuff that has to be invented. The mills and the gears and the bearings and the furnaces and the barrels and the insurance and the roads and the ports and the stevedores and the records and the inks and the paper and the books and the literacy. All of this needs to be invented 
just to put sugar in your Indian tea to make your dessert a little sweeter. So that tells you how much money is being made, that it's worth it, that not only is it worth it to do all of this stuff, that lots of people in the society, kings and nobles and companies, will all compete with each other in order to do it. So this requires to do, to make sugar into a major product, to make sugar large enough that it fulfills the demands of the market. You need a financial revolution. You need banks, insurance companies, stock companies, markets, both stock markets and commodity markets to sell this stuff on. Because when a ship comes in and it's got a thousand barrels on it, you can't be like, here, I'll just sell the barrel to whoever of molasses. No, there are people who are like, I want what's on that ship, and I'll pay up front now to get it when it shows up in six months. So you need commodity markets. That's how commodity markets work. You buy what will be made in the future. So you need to generate investment capital plus diversify risk and then distribute the profits. Then you need wholesalers, retailers, distributors, engineers, repair, services, manufacturing, shipping, ports, dockyards, timber, steel, and iron ore. You need mining. And this all requires education. All of this requires writing and reading. It requires uh, apprenticeships. It requires for some kind of formal education as you go up the skill ladder. The wholesalers and retailers need records. The engineers need to know how to build and construct and repair. You have services like the insurance that are going to work. You need consulting. Now, consulting is considered a modern thing, but there's always been guys who are like, you know how you could do this better? And someone goes, look, 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 stop. I'll pay you. You go do it. Okay. Look, guys, if you just move this to over here, so you have consulting that pops up. You have the manufacturing of the barrels and the ships. So you need timber. You need steel. You need workers for all of this stuff. So sugar requires a massive industry to support it. And kings are going to have to finance that. They're going to have to change the laws to allow money to move. Remember, the entire economic and thus legal system was based on land, land ownership. Urban merchants did not do well in the laws. Why? They were small and rare. Well, now you have to allow for banking. You have to allow for... um, you have to allow for um, return on investment. You have to re- allow for um, interest rates that were considered usury before, unchristian. You have to change all these laws. You have to allow the economic movement of money in ways that didn't work before, in ways kings didn't have to deal with before. And not only kings, nobody, nobody had to deal with. And so this invents capitalism. 
in order to finance the new world Atlantic trade. And we haven't even gotten to labor yet. You have to invent capitalism. And capitalism is all about the money. It's all about the Benjamins. Capitalism is an ism about capital. Capital is money. Investment money. And so who wins? Not the workers. It's not workerism. It's the owners and the investors. It's capitalism. They are the winners. That's why you have to understand when, when, when we talk about capitalism is the virus. It is. If you're worker-centric, yes. If you're humanity-centric, yes. All capitalism cares about is capital. The winners, the first people who get paid are those who invest the money. Not the workers. They're replaceable. Not the products. They don't matter. <coughs> so we have to invent capitalism to invent the industries that will allow sugar to become a major trade product. So what is the answer? What is the answer to this? How do we do it? Well, phase one is take native land. Loot their gold and silver. Lots of violence. This is the easy part. This is the, this is the part that we talk about. This is the part that's in the history books. The Spanish are crusaders. The natives aren't Christian. This is totally okay. Nobody has a problem with this. The church doesn't have a problem with this. The crusaders don't have a problem with this. The kings don't have a problem with this. The money comes flowing in. Everybody's happy. Now, there's a little bit of like the natives should be given the chance to become Christians first. And there's a bit of a debate there. And there's a bit of a working around. And there's uh, books that you will read in graduate school about different forms of empire. But in the beginning, in phase one, everyone's pretty cool with the violence part. It's okay. These were guys who were doing violence against Muslims. The natives aren't even Muslim. They're polytheists. And let's also be honest, they rip the hearts out of people. They do the Aztecs do human sacrifice. So kind of okay with shooting these people. That's phase one. Right or wrong, the Spanish, and to a lesser extent the Portuguese, don't care. And when the British and the French and the Dutch show up, they ain't going to care much either. They're going to deal with their situations differently. But violence is, you know, fairly acceptable. Then there's phase two. All right. The Spanish, we're going to have to turn natives into peasants and make them work on sugar plantations. See, at the moment, they're not peasants. They go and do all their regular native jobs. They live the, their native lives. No, 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 no. We need to put them on the land and make them f European farmers. Or, if they're really unlucky, mining the silver mines. And so we get oppression. So we start with violence, oppression. Now this is seen as better. The Spanish and the Portuguese are Christian. The natives aren't Christian. This is okay, uh, kind of. Like, now it's, we got to run the show. And so we have an oppression, but, you know... Now we're living with them, and maybe we shouldn't treat them so badly. Like, if they're going to be Christians, like, shouldn't we turn them into Christians? Yeah, maybe? I don't know. Phase three is the Catholic Church comes rolling in, man, like Moses. 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. You got to turn these natives into Christians. They have souls. They didn't know Jesus. Jesus did not die, come float up towards heaven, and then hang a left and end up in the new world, and then write giant books, and then, you know, on golden tablets and put them into the ground. That's crazy talk. Jesus did not come to North America. He did not come to South America. He did not come to the Americas. He went to hell, hung out there for three days, opened the gates, went to heaven. Boom. Done. Boop, 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 boop. And now we have to just wait for him to come back. So these natives never had a chance to become Christian. We got to make them Christian. We have to give them a chance. If they say no, then you could kill them. But if they say yes, they love Jesus. We have to treat them better. And so that makes phase one and two problematic. Now, phase one is pretty much being phased out. The king is like, you stop killing people, right? And phase two is we need them to work for us. And turning them into Christians is making phase two problematic because it means you can't oppress them as much as you might need to in order to get the most money out of them. But... It's problematic. It could be negotiated around. There's plenty of uh, power holders, you know, stakeholders. We use the word now. There's the king. There's the church. There's the pope over in Italy. There's there's bishops. There's there's the the plantation owners. There's a lot of moving parts. We can come to an agreement. Someone will political. That's a political problem. We have an ethical issue that can be politically solved. So great. The native land will be taken. Natives don't get it. The natives will be forced to work to produce sugar for an unending and massively growing appetite of European citizens. The natives will get Christianity, quote unquote, for their labor, and the Spanish Portuguese will make massive amounts of money, and everyone will eventually be equals before God and or the king. Great. That's, this is a hundred years. hundred year project. Right? By 1650, 1700 latest we're living in a group where the natives and the Spanish are intermarrying. And yeah, this, the natives are weird, but they're Christians. And we're all the same uh, citizens before, well, serve, we're not citizens. We're um, servants to the king. And we're servants to God. As long as nothing bad happens. This is what's going to happen. It's not great for the Native Americans, but they will be incorporated into the European, Spanish, Portuguese society. <gasps> well, what happens is 95% of Natives died from disease. We are talking genocidal die-off. We are talking the end of the dinosaurs die-off. We are talking the kind of extinction-level death that has happened six times in human, not human history, in world, global history, in the Earth's history. Native Americans had been separated from the new world, from the old world, from Europe, Asia, and Africa by 15,000 years. It meant we had two completely different disease immunologies. In the old world, diseases, especially from animals, like we just saw with COVID, coming out of animals, mutate, infect people, kill people. We've talked about plagues. We have the Black Death Plague of the Renaissance. We have the Plague of Justinian. We've got plague and plague and plague, right? We have the plague that at the end of the Roman 
uh, empire. Well, they don't have that in the new world. They have no experience. They've been cut off for 15,000 years. So, and they don't have any domesticated animals to get diseases from. And so, old world diseases are jacked because they have to fight to stay alive in bodies that are prepared for them. So it's like the Terminator, right? Because what your body does when you get sick, when you get the flu, what does your body do? It recognizes that you have the flu and it tries to kill it. And that act of trying to kill it is what makes you sick. Now, the disease is trying not to die. And it replicates. And it's that replication that will kill you. That's what COVID did. It filled the, the fighting of COVID and the replication of COVID would fill your lungs with water, with liquid. And I'm sure there's doctors who, would know, who, who are better at this. I probably could have explained this better a year ago when I was much better read on it. But, it's, but that's what happens is the replication plus the fighting creates waste that the body has to get rid of. And if the body isn't strong enough, it ends up in the lungs. It ends up in the organs. It ends up and it ruins your kidneys. This is how sepsis. Your body's trying to process out the infection and it ruins the kidneys, the liver. The new world didn't have any experience with this. And so you have a humanitarian disaster. It is the Homer Simpson sneezing when he goes back in time to the dinosaurs and sneezing and all the dinosaurs die. And he goes, ooh, that's going to be bad. It is War of the Worlds where the aliens, the Martians, have invaded... invaded... um, the Earth. And it's not some smart dude with an Apple II duo from 1995. It's the flu. That the, the Martian, with their super technology, destroying the world, die from the common cold. Because they had no immunity to it. So this is a humanitarian disaster. The death is, is on in a unimaginable scale. Mexico goes from 25 or so million people to two. North America is depopulated so that when in the 1620s, when the pilgrims, when the, when the Puritans, when these crazy people from who got kicked out of England because their revolutionaries show up, they're like, there's nobody here. Wow, God gave us a perfectly empty land. Well, there had been people there. There had been people there 15 years earlier. But the massive die-off from disease following the trade routes meant these communities pulled back. It is possible that as much as 100 million people lived in the New World before the Europeans showed up. And they're gone. They're gone. So that when English people show up in North America, they think it's empty. Oh, there's some people running around, but they're not important. And there's wars and stuff. And But we'll just get more from Europe.
This creates a crisis of labor. The Europeans can't import peasants. I mean, this creates a crisis of labor. You have to get labor from somewhere if you want to do this sugar thing. The peasants, who were supposed to be the workers of these farms, were supposed to be natives. Now there's no natives. So, all right, how about European peasants? Well, you can't. Why? Because, one, European kings and lords don't want their peasants going to the New World. Second, they're Christian peasants. They can't be forced to go to the New World. And they don't want to go. It's too hot. Too many diseases. Like malaria and yellow fever. There's tropical diseases down there. They don't want to go. So European peasants can't be, can't be imported. So that's a problem. Second, the Europeans could work the farms. <laughs> that ain't happening. These are conquistadors. They did not come to work. They want to be lords. They want to become rich guys. Now, later on, North America, the United States, will get this, the farmers came, and people just wanted land for themselves. Not the first group. The first group wanted to come, get rich, go home. They did not come to work. No one came to work. No one came to Nevis, a rock in the Caribbean, where it's 100 degrees in the summer, in order to work a farm. No white dude did that. They don't want to stay. They don't want to be there. They want the money. But, dude, it sucks. So they need another source of labor. And what is that source? What will they eventually come, come upon? African slavery. They will rely, Europeans will rely on African slavery to replace the loss of native labor. So all, all, you should understand this for sugar and mining and silver, for sugar and silver. We are going to have the largest mobilization transmission of peoples in the early modern world. We're going to completely change demographics. We're going to completely change cultures. We're going to completely change. We're going to invent whole new concepts like racism. And race in order to do this. And when I say we, I mean us as humanity. Because we're all part of this. We all benefit or suffer from this. And suffer from this, both. This is a humanity effect. And if you're like, well, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm East Asian. I'm not part of this. Yes, you are. Because... The Qing Dynasty and Korea and Japan all benefited from trade with Mexico through the Philippines. Spanish silver, South American silver, mined by natives and then later Africans, helped fund the economics of each East Asian states. They kept them liquid. So the world is going to be affected by this for good, for bad. There is no hiding this. I got into um, a Twitter fight, which isn't a real fight, but I got into a little Twitter fight with a guy who was like, hey, I live in the West. I live, meaning like 
He lived in California. I lived in the West. I had nothing to do with slavery. And my retort was, whose land were you, are you on? Where, who do you think owned the land before, like, you showed up? There was a whole group of people. And those, that group of people got massacred. They got obliterated. They got eliminated. Their land was taken. And then it was partialed. And then it was partitioned. And it was sold. And it was stamped. And it was squared. And then somewhere along the way, someone built something on it. And then that person sold it to somebody in the 50s. And then that person sold it to you. But you did not. The West is just as problematic. It just as implied with slavery and genocide of the Native Americans. The entire world. This will affect global economics, global war, the global movement of people. And so these are happy, (laughs) freaking happy, these are happy classes to teach. These are terrible classes to teach, but in our next episode, we do African slavery. You, you know where this is going, so that's what we're going to talk about. Slavery in the new world and its effects. So, be careful. Take care. Thank you for listening.